from Washington, D.C., the swamp itself, this is The Week's Worst with Allen and Veda. I'm Dr. Stephen J. Allen, Vice President and Chief Investigative Officer of the Capital Research Center. And I'm Matthew Vadum, Senior Vice President of the Capital Research Center and Editor-in-Chief of BombThrowers.com. And I'm Jake Klein, Media Producer at the Capital Research Center, and I'll be moderating this podcast in which we dig through the news for stories that we think are the most outrageous, the most ridiculous, the worst. So yesterday, uh, President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, Steve, you were in the audience for that at the White House. Um, This is a big win for us, I think. We've been pushing for this as an organization for a long time, and uh, we have a video with you online as well that you can watch on our YouTube channel uh, explaining why the uh, Paris Climate Accord um, was a bad idea in longer detail. We'll get into some of that here as well, as well as a, a very thorough article from you. So just to give us the uh, some brief information now, what was slash is for other countries the Paris Climate Accord? Yeah, it was. By the way, I wrote, I wrote my long piece on this was uh, entitled "We Won't Always Have Paris," and uh, I was sort of biting my uh, my fingernails a little bit uh, until we had a decision from the president. Uh, I didn't want to be proven wrong, and I was very glad to be proven right in this case because this is uh, this is something that's very important for our country and the world. Uh, the uh, Paris Climate Treaty, uh, and it is a treaty, uh, was something that, well, it's also not a treaty, but that's something we can talk about later. Uh, the, it was something that was developed uh, through a process that began decades ago. Um, it was the, spearheaded by the United Nations and environmental organizations to, uh, to address the issue of climate change, as they would say now. Back then it was global warming, and of course they, uh, they changed their phraseology. Uh, and they created a, a process uh, that uh, led to what was called the, the uh, Rio Treaty, uh, which was uh, adopted at the Earth Summit uh, back, in, back in 1992. Uh, and uh, this was a, a thing where the United States was just raked over the coals for its evil role in uh, evil capitalism in destroying the planet. Uh, and uh, a treaty was agreed to that was a treaty to make future treaties. And this was approved by the United States Senate. Uh, on a voice vote as people were headed out the door to go campaign for re-election. And uh, there was not a matter of controversy. Uh, Nobody voted against it because it was just a treaty to get together and make future treaties. Uh, And specifically, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee had uh, uh, provided an attachment to the Senate vote, you might say, uh, that uh, said uh, this is not to be taken as a uh, as an agreement that binds the United States to anything other than to get together and negotiate in the future. So that's what happened. And then time passes. Uh, there is the Kyoto Agreement, which was an international agreement supposedly to fight climate change or global warming, uh, that the United States did not participate in. Uh, and uh, in fact, it was never, it was negotiated by the Clinton administration. Al Gore was our signatory. Uh, but it was never submitted to the Senate for a vote, and therefore, at the time, it was understood that if you didn't submit a treaty to the Senate, and the Senate didn't pass it by a two-thirds vote, that it wasn't a treaty that binded, uh, that bound us, uh, and that was understood at the time. But uh, time passed. Uh, President uh, George W. Bush came in. Uh, he uh, withdrew us from the treaty. Uh, did not formally withdraw from the treaty, so it was just sort of sitting there the whole time. Uh, but he didn't submit it for a vote in the um, in the Senate and didn't follow the uh, follow the the provisions. So then another treaty was negotiated, and this was the Paris Treaty. And everybody wanted to take advantage of the fact that the U.S. administration was run by President Obama, who was a big uh, global warming guy. 
uh, and they got together. And um, this was actually described, uh, Stephen Chu, who was the uh, who was the Secretary of Energy in the first part of the Obama administration, uh, actually gave an interview to Wired magazine, and uh, he described it as uh, a process where we, the United States, would get together with China, by that he means communist China, uh, and we would uh, bully the rest of the world into uh, this agreement. He said it's, a, it's like a high, school, uh, a high school movie. Once the jocks and the nerds unite for a common cause, everyone falls in line. And uh, and that was uh, and that was the idea. And, and in fact, the rest of the world did fall in line, partly because we offered hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, money from the developed countries, so-called the more successful countries financially, uh, to go to the poorer countries. So the poorer countries were quick to get in. They also wanted to be um, there for the big conference that was to be held to determine uh, how the rules would work on this. And in order to do that, you had to be a, be a uh, participant in the treaty. So this was actually uh, put together, approved by the uh, by the countries of the world in record time. There was there's nothing like this. It, it was approved years before uh, it, people projected that it would be approved. And the reason was they had a deadline, and that deadline was the American presidential election. And in fact, it went into force on get this November fourth, twenty sixteen four days before Americans would have their say on uh, what they thought about this treaty and vote and have a chance to vote uh, and might vote for Donald Trump, who had promised to pull us out of the treaty uh, in May of 2016. So they deliberately scheduled this thing to get around the American democracy by uh, ramming it through before uh, the American people could have their have their say. And Donald Trump had promised to get rid of it. Uh, then when he unexpectedly wins the election, everyone is uh, thrown into a tizzy. Uh, there's a lot of deliberation at the White House. And then finally, we end up with the situation yesterday where the president uh, announced that he was uh, pulling us out of this uh, of this agreement. Specifically, what it does is it has the countries of the world make uh, unenforceable and in some cases impossible promises uh, by that, I mean there are some countries that have promised to get rid of more than 100% of their carbon emissions uh, on, uh, on carbon dioxide, which, of course, is an invisible gas that's harmless to humans, but that is blamed by uh, activists for uh, global warming, which, which they now call climate change, and um, that uh, the United States would you know, have, a, uh, have a reduction that would be equal to 26%, I believe, below the 2005 levels. I don't want to get into the weeds on this. These are basically just numbers. But this was to provide justification for the Obama administration policies to drive up the cost of electricity for Americans and make energy uh, expensive otherwise. Remember, the president admitted in the 2008 campaign, uh, he admitted in an interview with uh, newspaper um, uh, editorial staff people that uh, under his plan, he said electricity prices would necessarily skyrocket. That was his terminology. And this was part of that. Uh, and meanwhile, each country would get to um, come up with its own uh, promise. And this would, again, this would be unenforceable. Uh, each country would get to come up with its own method for deciding whether it had kept its promise. There were actually some poor countries that had to outsource all of this because they had no idea. When you have uh, South Sudan, for example, as a country with uh, 
10 million people, but outside the capital city, there's one paved road. Do you think they have lots of people running around keeping track of everyone's carbon footprint? Obviously not. So they had to, uh, countries like that had to outsource this. So there's like a little industry of people doing these measurements and then coming up with a plan for them because they don't really have the capacity to come up with a plan. The main thing was to transfer money to uh, these uh, these other countries. Uh, for There's supposed to be a green climate fund, $100 billion a year, uh, which would go to uh, the so-called developing world. That is to say to the kleptocrats and dictators in those countries to spend as they will. And uh, and this money, uh, for example, India said, uh, "Well, we won't we won't uh, approve this treaty unless we get a promise of 2.5 trillion dollars," uh, and uh, and that was their requirement for getting it. And and uh, so, of course, India was in favor of. It. People said, well, "Why would why would India be in favor of it? Because they're one going to be one of the countries that has the biggest increase uh, in uh, carbon emissions." Uh, well, they're going to get a lot of money out of it. And money's going to go to the communist Chinese who have this huge economy. So. Uh, Steve, before we go further, let's let's deal with an, a question that, uh, an issue that has been bugging me quite a bit. You have um, the statement, even, even uh, President Trump was infelicitous in his use of language yesterday, saying that the United States was withdrawing, or he was withdrawing the United States from this Paris Climate Accord. But according to a Northwestern University School of Law professor, Eugene Kantorovich, he wrote in the Washington Post uh, opinion section yesterday, Trump is not quitting the Paris Accord. The United States was never in it in the first place. What he should have said at the press availability was that the United States never properly joined the accord. It's a treaty that requires the advice and consent of the Senate. Instead, President Barack Obama chose to adopt, in quote marks, it with an executive order last September. So, uh, really, it was just a dec- He, I guess he's arguing that it was just a declaration that we're not part of this treaty, and it is to be followed up with some kind of executive action in which he... He, he formalizes that. Just just go, could we go over the, uh, without making it too boring, could we just go over the legal niceties here? Yeah, uh, basically it's this. And uh, you are a lawyer in theory. And, and yes, and, uh, and a political scientist and other things. The, um, uh, the president can make an agreement with another country uh, that affects that president. And he could, he, he or she could always pull out of such an agreement, but you would have the moral authority, the legal, you know, it, there would be the expectation that this uh, would be kept. And obviously things happen like wars where people break all sorts of agreements. But generally speaking, uh, you would keep that uh, those agreements to the uh, best of your ability because you're depending on other countries to keep their agreements. Uh, the, the This particular treaty... Uh, and the reason I said it's a treaty, it's not a treaty, is it's a treaty for everywhere, or everywhere else in the world, but then they pretend it's not a treaty for the United States. And the reason they do that is because it's in the Constitution, very specifically, uh, Alexander Hamilton wrote about this in the Federalist Papers, why this was so important, that the Senate uh, approve a treaty by a vote, by a two-thirds vote. And the closest thing we have to a Senate vote on this uh, we have two instances that you might look at and say, you know, well, would the Senate, uh, has the Senate ever approved anything like this? Five years after that earlier agreement I told you about where the, um, the Senate did approve a treaty to make treaties in the future, there was a vote called the, uh, on the Byrd-Hagel um, uh, resolution. And that was the former Democratic leader of the Senate. 
and the future um, cabinet member, uh, defense secretary under the Obama administration. He's a Republican, but a moderate Republican. And so not not crazy right wingers. And they pro- like you and me, like you and me. And they propose that we specifically say we will not be a party. Do not ex- you know expect that because of some previous uh, vote that we've taken that this means we're a party. We will not be a party to any treaty that treats the United States uh, or the developing world uh, in general differently from other countries, which this does, or that would harm the economy of the United States, which this does. So, so is it fair to say, Dr. Allen, that it is a treaty, but that the U.S. Uh, consti- U.S. law doesn't recognize it as right. a treaty because— Binding on the United States because it wasn't formally ratified by the U.S. by a two-thirds vote in the affirmative of the U.S. Senate. Is right. that is that correct? Like there are tre- a treaty can exist without us being a party to it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Other countries can bind themselves with treaties among themselves. But uh, the Bird Hagel uh, resolution, by the way, passed ninety-five to nothing. 95 to nothing, not to ever approve a treaty like this. Uh, and then, of course, the Obama people, uh, the Obama and the Democrats, had a 60-vote um, majority in the Senate uh, and uh, in early in the days of the Obama administration and never brought this thing up. And obviously it wouldn't pass now because you need a two-thirds vote, and it's unlikely the thing would even get a majority vote, uh, much less a two-thirds vote. So it's clear there's no prospect— for anything like this ever getting through the U.S. Senate. And yet the Constitution says we're not a party to a treaty unless it does go through the U.S. Senate with a two-thirds vote. So what happened was President Obama just sort of certifies that the United States has ratified this treaty. And the this fiction, legal fiction, as we call it, uh, was uh, accepted by the people on the other side because in order for the treaty to go into force, you had to have uh, 55 countries with 55% of the total emissions. And without the United States, uh, that just wasn't going to happen. Uh, and uh, so in order for the thing to exist, they had to pretend that it had been ratified. And that's, that's what these people are. They're just, they're con artists. They're, they're, they're uh, bureaucrats whose power depends on this kind of thing. And that's what they do. So you're absolutely right on that. So obviously, we think that this was a, a good idea, but concretely, uh, what benefits do you see this having uh, for America? Well, if, if this had continued, here's what would have happened. Uh, everyone talks about this as a non-binding agreement. We're just making a promise. We don't have to keep it. Uh, and that's true for every country that I know of other than the United States. I don't know of any country that has an independent uh, part of the government that can order the other part of the government, the executive part, to do things. But we have that here, and we're seeing that with the immigration fight, the immigration, uh, the temporary ban uh, from certain uh, hot terrorist hotspots. We're seeing that where the judges come in and they say, well, you're, we're not going to let you do that. We don't like your politics on that. And, and very specifically, they said, we don't like your politics on that. And uh, the um, so this would be a basis for judges to come in and say, uh, we have a treaty obligation, uh, and that would certainly be that. If we had allowed this to go through, it would have set the precedent, not only for this, but other situations where a president just declares that a treaty has been ratified without actually going through the constitutional process. But but uh, you would have had judges enforcing this. You would have had bureaucrats uh, operating on the premise that it, it as if it had been approved. And you can see that. Look at the reaction. People see this as almost a religious thing. Uh, and uh, as I pointed out, uh, I wrote a, a long piece on this that's on our website. 
you know, when they were rushing to get this through, they didn't know Donald Trump was going to be elected. Of course, he was always a a, a, a possibility, but but not, uh, you know, the, the odds were not in his favor. But then the nightmare became a reality. Then the night, but why did they rush? Why did they, why were they so crazy to get this thing done by November 4th? If they weren't afraid that much of Trump, well, they were a little bit. But mainly it was it was the Republican Congress, but also they wanted to give cover to President Hillary Clinton if she were elected. Because think about it. She'd be able to say, look, guys, I, you know, you Pennsylvania coal miners, I really feel sorry for you. And you, you shouldn't vote against me because I love you. But I'm just stuck. I have to follow the Paris Treaty. And the Paris Treaty says I have to do certain things that basically involve shutting down the coal industry. So I'm really, really sorry. But it's not my fault. And that was, it was to provide you, cover you, for you Hillary. You better just go back to clinging to your um, guns and religion. Exactly. So, so you know, there's so much, it's, this thing is basically politics. It's people covering themselves, making it look like they're environmental crusaders. Um, the, uh, you know, there's one scientific projection that was based on everybody fulfilling their obligations, which is hilarious because there's never been a, there have been other climate agreements and nobody kept the agreements. There weren't countries. The only countries that ever kept agreements to cut down on, um, on the, um, uh, the green, uh, on particularly carbon dioxide were, uh, in situations where it was happening naturally. I mean, we've had a, uh, what, an 18% decrease in the United States, and it's because of fracking, which uh, led to this explosion of use in natural gas, which the Obama administration fought tooth and nail against. So the environmental and all the environmentalists, they're all against the very things that are uh, making things better from their perspective. So you mentioned in there that um, this this deal was going to shut down the coal industry. Um, a lot of what I've read in the media has said that the coal industry has been dying anyway. This isn't going to do anything to bring back the coal industry. And just talking about jobs more broadly, 25 major U.S. companies, including Apple, Facebook, and Google, urged President Trump not to exit the accord, um, claiming the, the Paris Agreement creates jobs and growth by, quote, expanding markets for innovative, clean technologies, as opposed to coal. Um, even oil companies such as Royal Dutch Shell, ExxonMobil, and BP uh, backed the accord. So how can we and the president claim that um, uh, backing out of the accord will, will help the economy? Well, you can tell what they're up to when they use misleading language. They talk about clean energy. Well, of course, we're talking about carbon dioxide, which is, again, is invisible, harmless to humans. Uh, and they're basing that on this uh, confusion that people have between black carbon, you know, soot, like you'd see in a fireplace, you know, that kind of thing, and and carbon monoxide, which people do die from if they get, you know, if, uh, fall asleep in the garage with the car running or something like Along that. Along with dihydrogen monoxide, which yes. is also very dangerous. Right, and and we've seen that where you have people collecting petitions to ban dihydrogen monoxide and everybody signs it because they think it's something, a dangerous chemical, and it is dangerous, it's water, and people <laughs> drown in water. But anyway, the, the companies that you're talking about, I mean, they're the worst of the worst. Uh, the most irresponsible, uh, extreme. They have the most extremist politics. Um, you know, these are the. That's why we're so concerned about these folks having their uh, control of the social network universe. Uh, Google and Facebook, Microsoft and Apple, uh, and then and then others like ExxonMobil. Uh, and of course, ExxonMobil. Uh, my theory, and no one has really come up with a counter to this. Uh, is that ExxonMobil changed its position and became a crusader for the global warming religion. 
and that they did it because um, the, that the reason they did it was because they had bought the largest natural gas company in America. And of course, one of the things that uh, you would have happen uh, in a world where you had to restrict carbon emissions would be you would shift from uh, fuels like coal and oil to natural gas, which is much cleaner burning. Of course, you know, they'll come for the natural gas people uh, after that. And, and, and you see that with the, uh, the environmentalists going after fracking. They believe that no carbon-based fuels should be brought out of the ground at this point, that that's it. Uh, and, and, and that would be a, a danger for the whole world. But anyway, so you have Morgan Stanley, uh, you have uh, The Gap. The Gap is uh, in favor. They were one of the uh, organizations that uh, that signed this uh, this ad in the New York Times uh, calling on the president's state. You mean the fashion retailer? Yes, exactly. And I really care what The Gap has to say about uh, global warming. Tiffany's. Tiffany's was in there. Mars Candy was in there. Blue Cross, Blue Shield, the Hartford. Look, you know, there are a lot of folks who are... Left, they're left-wing corporations. You see that when they participate in boycotts of conservatives for no good reason. Like uh, Starbucks telling gun owners to drop dead. Right. And and I remember, you know, I covered this years ago, 20 years ago, when the corporate, uh, the public affairs departments and corporations were being targeted by the left for takeover. And they would get their people in there. And I actually attended conferences where someone from uh, the, 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 uh, the telephone company, for example, would stand in front of a group of liberal activists, left-wing activists, and say, don't think because I'm from a big corporation that I'm not on your side. I'm 100% on your side. And then he'd give his background and to prove it. Uh, so that's what you have in a lot of corporate America. The Fortune 500 uh, is, unfortunately, their public affairs departments are, uh, are overwhelmingly people on the left. And then you have people who wish to profit off of uh, a deal like the Paris deal, like ExxonMobil, with its uh, ownership of uh, natural gas. And like General Electric's Jeffrey Immelt, your classic crony capitalist crony capitalist and of course who quit who quit the uh, president's advisory councils over this uh, oh did he do that along uh, with elon, elon musk elon musk did elon musk did yeah. and of course elon musk is somebody boy i tell you uh, if anybody personifies crony capitalism, it's Elon Musk, who uh, got, uh, as of two years ago, according to the Los Angeles Times, $4.9 billion in subsidies and managed to make himself a billionaire. Uh, you give me $4.9 billion, I'll make myself and a billionaire. And those were largely too. subsidies for green technology. So he's a direct beneficiary of That's this exactly stuff. right. He's the maker of the Tesla automobile, isn't he? And by the way, battery, I mean, think about it. Is there really any benefit to battery-powered cars? Because you're plugging the... The, the car into the electric grid, so whatever is used to make the electricity is going to be reflected in what the car uses I up. had one when I was like four, a little sports car, you know, driving around in the basement at like half a mile an hour with, on battery power. It was it was awesome. And so, I'm not so saying... Do, so give, don't you put down all electric cars. Given enough subsidy, given, and given uh, that, you know, if you're, if you're selling cars for 100 grand each, then um, I think this, this car was about $100, technology. actually. Yeah. And, and by the way, let me make a point on this business about, well, we're going to, all our companies are going to make money by developing this uh, green technology. Well, guess what? What's going to happen is, if, if there or would have happened if the Paris Treaty, treaty had continued, uh, as far as U.S. involvement, and that is, uh, we're going to invent this stuff, and then the, the third world countries, the developing countries will say, okay, now we want it, give it to us. And that's exactly what the Chinese do now. Uh, if you operate a country and you have a factory in China, they expect you to turn over your what's called intellectual property, which is your your, your techniques, your technology, and um, 
And that's exactly what would have happened with this. And you see it with you see it with AIDS drugs. You see it with all kinds of things where we spend the money to develop things, and then people in the in other parts of the world, and and understandably, I mean, if you're in a country where people live on a dollar fifty a day, you know, you can see why they wouldn't want to pay for things. But the point is, we're not going to make money off these things when we have to give them away. And I just wanted to add on this point. You know, it is true that market forces are. Um, pushing down the coal industry, even uh, without this um, additional regulatory burden. But it's about the speed with which those that's going to happen in part. And there are communities that are really struggling from uh, this industry leaving. And if you speed that up and they don't have the time to adjust and find new jobs, uh, you you devastate these communities. And we've been seeing that going on. And, and yes, renewable energies, even on the market, would be growing. But when you do that out of whack with market forces, when you try and speed that up by giving subsidies and the cost per kilowatt hour of renewable energy is still so much higher, all you're doing is burning up dollars that you know poor people in this country could be using on things they need, whether it's you know, getting a mortgage or paying for food or, you're, or whatever. You're redistributing wealth there according are. to the dictates of politicians, instead of letting people decide with their wallets and their and their feet um, how things should be done in our society. And and you see a situation like how it happens in Europe, where you have uh, you pay three times the U.S. price for electricity. Um, you have ultra high costs for things like home heating fuel. And, uh, and as a result, what happens in Britain? Well, don't you yeah. have eight or ten dollars a gallon for gasoline? Yeah, and, and it by might the way, even be high, it's higher in some And places, Obama's Secretary of Energy, Stephen Chu, said that, that European style pricing for gasoline should be our goal. And at the time he said that, it was, uh, it was before, the, uh, before the 2008 election, before he was appointed, but right before. And uh, he, said, uh, he said European style prices, that was eight dollars a gallon at the time. So, so and in Europe, uh, in Britain particularly, uh, you have people dying of what's called energy poverty. They can't afford to keep their houses warm, and they die by the thousands. And this is widely reported in Britain, and yet people say, well, gosh, that's just the price we have to pay. we got to fight that global warming. Well, don't people Climate also, change. when you have the occasional, uh, they don't have heat waves in Western Europe very often, but when they do, you, you'll have lots of people killed uh, in places like France, in warmer parts of France where they're not, uh, uh, or sorry, in cooler parts of France where they're not used to uh, high temperatures and they don't have air conditioning. Um, you know, air conditioning is a luxury only for the rich in those parts. So uh, if you're, if you're you know, 85 years old and in poor health and a shut-in and there's a heat wave, what are you, you're just going to sit there and roast. Yeah. And, and, and uh, it's, it can't, it's not good for people. And if you're in that part of the world that doesn't have electricity now, you know, you look at satellite images of Africa and you can see outside of, of, Nor- of North Africa and, and, and South Africa, uh, the vast area in between, uh, you see just blackness mostly, very little light because people aren't in the electric grid. And that, that they can't, you can't get the standard of living up to what we expect to live on in this country. You know, we are a rich country and poor people in this country uh, I'm not uh, saying there's not poverty, but poor people in this country have uh, have it much better off than uh, middle class people in most of the world. And in places, you know, places where people are living on a dollar fifty a day or or less, and they, they burn animal dung to heat their hovels, their huts, uh, which which is not good. Which is which is you know, and there's 
there's um, uh, toxic blowback when they do that. Yeah, in fact, indoor air pollution from having to use these uh, these stoves inside houses is one of the leading causes of lung cancer. In fact, uh, WHO said it was the uh, cause of most of the cases of lung cancer in the world, not smoking, but rather people having to use these stoves because they don't have access to electricity. And who are we to tell these people you're not going to be able to uh, to rise up. I understand if the science worked out, you know, you could make a case and you could figure out a system, but this is not it. This is this is horrible. And there's statistics out there about climate-related deaths over time and correlating that with um, the price of energy. And, you know, cheap energy is a huge, huge saver of lives, and it's largely because of these types of places where, um, you know, uh, extreme weather kills people, and if they don't have the energy to protect themselves against it, and um, these hovels that you're talking about where people, you know, really damage themselves because they can't get more conventional forms of energy that are safer to use. Um, but moving on from this, uh, another major criticism of uh, pulling out of the accord that has been all over the media is how can the U.S. be trusted by other countries to make international agreements if with changing administrations we're so willing to change course. And I know we went over some of the problems with um, uh, how this was ratified in America or not ratified, Um, but might you make the argument that the burden is too high or once a president commits to something, you you just got to stick with it? Um, Because a number of foreign leaders have expressed a reduction of their trust in the United States, Uh, most notably Germany's Angela Merkel, um, and what is this going to mean for U.S. global influence? Yeah, Angela Merkel, who's messed things up so badly in Germany uh, that uh, they have to—they're paying people to build uh, uh, coal-fired power plants to make up for the deficit in energy caused by the uh, transfer over to so-called renewables. I mean, it's just—it's a complete mess. And uh, look— they, the United States has always been the target of all of this. Uh, everybody said that. This was to remake the world, to create, as the head of the uh, UN panel behind this said, uh, to uh, remake uh, the, the world economy. This is our chance to, 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 to remake it for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and, of course, you had people like Van Jones, who was uh, Obama's uh, green jobs czar early in the administration, who said that uh, the whole idea of, uh, of green uh, capitalism was to move away from capitalism and eventually get to a system that's not capitalism at all. And sort of your midpoint is green capitalism. Right. And he's an admitted communist, so we know where he's coming from. So, so my, my point is that, you know, they, they made a deal with Barack Obama. Uh, They made a deal with Barack Obama knowing that an election was coming up. Uh, and it was with Barack Obama only, and they knew his term was expiring. And and to those who say, well, we should, you know, we should let people know uh, what the rules are for us getting into an inter- international agreement. Maybe we should write that down in something, and then like publicly, you know, put publish it, put it out on the web, uh, print it up in little books, and and we could call it, I don't know, the U.S. Constitution. How about that? Uh, and then and then people, I I know it's a real burden to make people in Germany and France and Britain, uh, you know, look up a copy of the U.S. Constitution, but maybe we should make that a requirement so they understand that when they're dealing with us, if they want to do a treaty, it has to be ratified by the U.S. Senate. Okay, any final thoughts on this topic? It's a terrible agreement, and it's wonderful that President Trump uh, is um, is not going to honor it. This is a great victory for for 
economic freedom and for uh, uh, self-determination of the people uh, of the United States. Uh, this is a treaty that's not a treaty that's binding, but it's not binding. Uh, it affects the United States, which has ratified it, but except that it hasn't ratified it. That's my point. This is all bureaucratic mumbo-jumbo. It's the kind of thing that these people try to impose on us. And thank goodness we're Americans and we don't stand for this kind of nonsense. Steve, do you want to plug your article on this topic one last time? Uh, I have an article, We Won't Always Have Paris. Uh, that's a long version of, uh, of, of this. Uh, what is this? 12,000 words. I get into all these issues. Uh, and there's also a, an op-ed that I did for uh, the Washington publication, The Hill, which you can also see on our website. And we have a, a video, in fact, on this. Uh, and well. that's at capitalresearch.org. That's our show for this week. We'll be back next week, and we hope you'll join us. If you're not already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on social media at Capital Research Center on Facebook and YouTube and at Capital Research on Twitter. I'm Dr. Stephen J. Allen. And I'm Matthew Vader. And I'm Jake Klein. Thanks for listening.